But I do ask that we come to God's word with reverence and humility and fully attentive to what he has to say to us this morning. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples. And our scripture this morning comes from Colossians 3, 12 through 4, 6. Once again, that's Colossians 3, 12 through 4, 6. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your, your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Very much. Um, let's, uh, as we consider uh, the word of the Lord, let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer, asking for his help. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you remember the whole experience of getting your driver's license. For me, as a, a kid, I could not wait to get my license because that meant freedom. Right Once you got the car, once you got those keys, the road, you could, the, the road was open, you could go, you know, in theory, you could go wherever you wanted to go. And I can remember the whole process of learning to drive and driving around with my parents, usually my dad, and just the 
I just did not like that at all. Some of my dad is co constantly telling me what to do, what not to do, don't do this, watch out for this. And I would be like, Dad, I got this. I'm fine, I know what I'm doing. Right, and I can remember on the back of the, of the window, there was this, it said um, dry, or permit driver or something along those lines. It was kind of humiliating. You know, you drive along, everyone knows, oh, say, you know, this is just, you know, you're not a real driver yet, you know. And so you longed for having that, that freedom of actually getting your license and then actually having, having that license and being by yourself without your parents in the car. And then there's the first time it actually happens. And you get in the car, and you're like, all by yourself. And you turn on the road, and you realize, do I know what I'm doing? <laughs> right? It's not quite what you thought it would be. There's all this sense of anticipation of how wonderful it's going to be to be on the road by myself. And then you get on that road, and the anticipation turns into anxiety. I, do I know what I'm doing? Am I going the right way? Do I, do I remember how to get there? Before it was just like, you always got to the right place. You get in the car with your parents, you, of course you're not going to show up at the right place. There's not even, not even a doubt in your mind that you're going to get there. And that the there is the right place to be. You know, where, where, where am I? Right? This, but this is a long time ago, kids, before the days of Google Maps, etc. You actually had to know where we were going. Whereas I just follow the blue line anymore. I just sort of, I, I enter the, the address and I go where it tells me to go. So anticipation turns into anxiety. And fun, what you thought was going to be fun, turns into fear. And you wonder, do I know what I'm doing? Do I know where I'm going? Right? And so this, this idea of this longing that we often have as humans, and especially as young people, of freedom. I'm going to be free. Freedom from constraint actually ends up being... A very fearful thing. Freedom actually gives way to fear. In fact, it often, um, it often means, freedom often means facing the world alone. And this is an experience actually that many of our young people have today. You know, when I grew up, or, or, or those of us who are older, when we grew up, we grew up in a time of so much constraint, we wanted, we wanted to rebel. We wanted, to, hey, you know, we wanted to remove the authority, the constraints in our lives. But today, young people grow up, and all those constraints, they've all been removed. They're all gone. And the message is, hey, you do you. You figure it out. Isn't it great? You're on your own. And at first, kids are like, yeah, I'm on my own. Woo! And then they realize, oh my goodness, I'm on my own. Hey, it's up to you. Oh, it's great. Oh, man, it's up to me. It's all up to me, and unprecedented, our, our young people today are at unprecedented levels overcome with, with depression and with anxiety, wondering, can they do this thing called life on their own, that for them, freedom isn't so freeing. In fact, freedom leads to fear, and secondly, it leads to frustration, because we have to figure out life on our own. And the question is, is freedom, is this kind of freedom, really that freeing? that make sense? Our culture is obsessed with the idea of freedom from constraint. And more than ever, I think we are ruled by fear and we are ruled by that frustration and that depression that come from that, from trying to do it life on our own. But in contrast to that freedom, there's a way of living that scripture offers that isn't about liberty, 
It's about loyalty. It's about loyalty. That's not about liberty from constraint. It's about loyalty to Christ. It's not about freedom. It's about following. It's about a fidelity that means two things that Colossians have been talking about. First, it means protection. In fact, we see this. We want to turn to the left. If you want to follow along your pew Bible, we're on page 1017, where it says Colossians 3 is what Kathy read for us. But if you want to just turn to chap- back to chapter 1, that's on, that's on page 10, uh, 1015, 1015, where Paul speaks of this freedom, or this, this I'm sorry, the fidelity that we have in, for, for those who belong to Jesus. He says in verse uh, 12 and 13, verse 13, he says, For he, that is the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he's saying we've been transferred into a new kingdom into the re- under the reign of Jesus Christ, who reigns over death, who reigns over all the powers of this world, who has the last word, who is the most influential person in human history, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and we now belong to him and we enjoy his protection. But not only do we enjoy his protection, we enjoy a sense of his purpose. Look and move forward to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, on page 1016. It says, So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, just as you recognize that he is in charge, Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, together, I'm sorry, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. There's a sense of purpose. Our, our job in life now is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him. And with that following, with that fidelity, with that loyalty, comes a protection and a purpose. Again, it's getting back to the analogy of driving. When I was with my dad, he knew where to go. He knew what to do if there was a problem of some sort of issues. Lately, of late, I've been teaching my daughters to drive, and there have been moments where they're, and they're doing great. They're much more responsible than I was at that age. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and there are moments, though, where uh, other drivers, you know, shockingly, other drivers in St. Louis have been just crazy and out of control, and I've had to immediately just instruct them on exactly what to do to avoid a crash. And they've done a phenomenal job. But to have that, that, that source of wisdom, to have that source of authority, that presence as you're driving around with you is a wonderful thing if we want it, if, unless we think that we can do life all on our own. Okay? And so the idea, the question here is, do I, do I really want that freedom from constraint? Or do I want that fidelity, that loyalty to Christ that leads to a true form of freedom. And the, for the Colossian Christians, these, I mean, this is in the, the, the region of Asia, what's called today Asia Minor, these Colossian Christians had come to receive and welcome. They, wa- they did not want that freedom. In fact, that kind of sort of freedom was really quite uh, unknown in the ancient world. The idea of trying to be free on your own was actually un- completely undesirable. They saw through to the lies of it all. They didn't want to be free. They wanted to be in an alignment with the right person in power. That's how the ancient world thought, and I'll explain that in a little, a little more in a second. But the Colossians had basically come to a place where they had said thing, two things to Jesus. First, they had said, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. They recognized the role they had played 
in their life of how so often the decisions they made led to the harm of others and to the sabotage of their own life. And they, they recognized the wrongs they had done and they said, I'm sorry. And, and in so doing, listen to this, he forgave them. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. This is so amazing. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul uses some beautiful language here. First, the idea of a, of, of a charge. The idea is that you have this written charge, this written accusation. Think of a, um, you know, a, 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 um, a ticket that you might get from a police officer, you know, a speeding ticket. It's written out. It's right there. And then he, Paul says that ticket or that, that bill, he says, has been canceled. In fact, the, the Greek actually says erased. It's the, he, he has erased the charge of our legal indebtedness. And again, notice he says he has forgiven all our sins. When you become a Christian, when you say I'm sorry, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are erased it's an incredible, it's a remarkable, it's a truly astonishing thing. And like, just by way of illustration, let me, let me just, uh, this is sort of a humorous story, but I think it's worth, it's worth communicating. In the early 1980s, there was a, a wealthy British businessman who was, um, he was uh, on, a, on an extended business trip in France, and he was driving his Rolls Royce through the Alps. When to his surprise, he heard this, his, this car made a just terrible noise, and concerned about it, he pulled aside to the side of the road, and the car immediately died. And of course, uh, this is the 80s, so he had to walk, he, you know, no cell phone or anything like that, so he walked to a nearby gas station, and he contacted the Rolls-Royce dealership in London. And to his amazement, listen to this, within less than a half hour, a team of mechanics showed up at the car, fixed the problem in just over 20 minutes, and they promptly disappeared. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. Six months passed, and the businessman had received not a single bill requesting payment for the work that had been done. And finally, his conscience was bothering him, so he sent a letter to the dealership requesting the bill. And he received the following response by mail. Dear sir, thank you for your inquiry. Unfortunately, we are unable to send you a bill because we have no record of your, of your Rolls Royce, or for that matter, any other Rolls-Royce ever breaking down. <laughs> Respectfully, Rolls-Royce motor cars. Now, how many of you believe that story's true? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Kirk's over here. The Rolls-Royce, yeah, reliable. I don't know. But that's actually, I looked into it, that's actually, like a many sermon stories, that's actually an urban legend. Okay. The story I just shared uh, is, in fact, one person, I've, I've done the research on this, one person actually contacted the British automaker, this, this was a while ago, I think this was in the late 90s, to see if they would confirm or deny the story. And this was the actual real response that the British automaker gave them. I wish to acknowledge and thank you for your letter. The tale that you depict in your letter is, in fact, one of the many stories of Rolls-Royce mythology. If it isn't true, it should be, and if we could afford it, it would be. Now, think about that for a second. Their hope is that they could actually, listen to this, erase the record of debt. There is no record of debt. It never really happened in a sense. And what Rolls-Royce can't afford, our Heavenly Father did afford with the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. 
He has forgiven you all your sins. Isn't that amazing? It's an incredible thing. And what does that mean? That's the, that, that, that enables us. This is so important. The, the application here isn't that, that we just forget about our sins or pretend that they're not in there. It's quite the opposite. The Christians are to, be, are to be those who most freely confess their sin because it has been forgiven. Does that make sense? There's no more powerful thing that we can do as co-workers than own the things that we have failed at work. There's no more powerful thing that we can do as, as supervisors. There's no more powerful thing that we can do as parents and as spouses than confessing the sins that our Father has forgiven. But even just recently, it was, you know, yesterday, my, I... Uh, I, well, two days ago, I had gone to, to one of my daughter's bedrooms. I opened the door, and it was late afternoon, and she was in bed sleeping, looking at her phone. And I just said, what are you doing? It is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I just, I just laid into her. I got so upset with her. And I didn't know the backstory. I didn't listen. I didn't ask any questions. The truth of the matter, she'd gotten up early, gone into work. She'd done some, cleaned up her room, did all this work. And then she was literally just, gotten, just laid down for a little bit and wanted to take a little nap for a second. So I totally misread the situation. And I said, I'm so sorry. I, I, I uncharitably judged you. And listen, parents, there's no more important thing that you can do than to ask your kids for forgiveness. They want to forgive you. And so but when you're, you're free to do that, when we know we've been forgiven by the Lord. And so again, these Colossians, they, have, they, they understand, they get it. They know that they, they've, they've said, I'm sorry, and they know that God has fully fully forgiven them. But not only, this is so important, not only have they said, I, I'm sorry, they've said, I surrender. They said, I surrender. And just as God, just as they said, I'm sorry, and he forgave them, when they said, I'm I'm, and when they said, I surrender, he says, listen, I am for you. I'm for you. Okay, look, at, look in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. That is to say, God in all his power and all his authority dwells in the person of Jesus who died for our sins. He is for us. In verse 10, it says that Jesus is in charge. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. He is in charge and he's for us. So when we say, I'm sorry, he forgives us. When we say, I surrender, he says, I'm for you. I'm for us. Okay? So, in, in our present passage, this, this text is very much a, a, a passage of application. It's about living life under his lordship. It's about living life when we say, you know what? Dad, maybe you should drive. Jesus, you should be in the driver's seat. And, this is, and when that happens, this is what it looks like for our relationships. And we see this notion of lordship appearing throughout this whole section. For example, um, there, there are three sections here I want to talk about. The first is living under his lordship in terms of his family, that is the family of God, living under his lordship in our family, that's our own personal families, our own homes, and then finally, living uh, under his lordship um, in his world, in the world. And we'll talk about that briefly, okay? So first, but I want you to see the ways that his lordship shows up in this section, okay? So first and foremost, look at verse 17, for example. In chapter 3, verse 17, he's speaking of the living in the lordship of Christ in the family of God, and verse 17 is the climax. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the what? 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in other words, governing all of our interactions among the family of God, we are to live as those who are under the lordship of Christ, who are serving the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And then again in this next section of chapter, uh, verse, verse 18 to the beginning of, of, of chapter 4 about instructions to Christian households, when our, when our lives are under his lordship, it, it, it appears in these verses, that the language of lordship appears. Look at verse uh, 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Even verse 22 it talks about slaves. And in fact, it's, uh, it's in verse, just uh, look at verse uh, 23. He says, whatever you do, he's speaking to slaves, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you, know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as, as a reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And then he says the same thing to masters in chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you, that you also have a... Then that word master, kurios, is simply Lord. You also have a Lord in heaven. So he's taking these, these roles, these, these, these familial roles, these household roles, and he's saying, what is it like to, li- to live those out under the lordship of Christ? So with that, let's just kind of walk through this section, understanding that having said I'm sorry, having said I surrender, having desiring to live under that lordship, this is what it looks like. So first and foremost, what does it look like? What does his lordship look like in his family or in his household? Well, look at verse 12. To live life under his lordship is to know that we are wanted by God. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. Do you think about that enough? Do you get up in the morning and you think, you know, I have been chosen by God. He wants me. I was his idea. He came after me. I didn't go after him. He came after me. I was lost and I was found. I was blind and now I see. He chose me. Okay, and that doesn't mean that you're better than others. In fact, it may mean that God usually chooses all the wrong people. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus is regularly choosing all the worst sinners. He chooses the the prostitutes, the tax collectors. In fact, just because we're chosen, it it, it by no means that mean it in no way means that we are choice. There's a huge difference between being chosen and choice. Right? You go to the store, you go to Costco, sometimes I'll say, hey, Sarah, let's get some, it's really, it's, it's grill out this week, let's, get some, let's get some really good food, let's get some steak or something. And she goes and buys choice meat at Costco. Right? Chosen does not mean choice. You read the story of Scripture again and again, and God chooses all the least likely candidates. It's the people of God who continue to embarrass God again and again and again because he loves to be the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, but, but, it's, but it's even more amazing to know that he, why me? Why would he choose me for? I'm the least likely candidate. I'm a disaster. I still can't get my life together. And yet somehow, for some reason, he wants me in his family. To live life under the lordship of Christ is to know that you are chosen, but not choice. It's to know that you are holy. That is to say you're set apart for a specific purpose and calling. You're living your life. You're on a different trajectory than the rest of the world. You're, you're in the car. You're in the driver's seat. You're with Jesus. He's there telling you where to go. 
and you're going in a different direction from the rest of the world. You're going to a different destination. You're holy. There's a different objective in life. What we just said, it was so beautiful. I loved how Jen read about the summary of the law. Wasn't that beautiful? Right? She spoke of how the, we, we are living in an age of what? Of distraction. It's all about the NFL and the NBA. It's all about Roku. It's all about, I mean, there's a thousand things to distract us. And Christians are live holy lives because their priority is what? Not work, not play, but love. So as we live our lives in the family of God, we know that we are chosen, that we are holy, and that we are dearly loved. You know, it's one of the great, when I was sitting around with my pastor friends, this is about a year and a half ago, two years ago, before the pandemic broke out, and we were, we meet together uh, three or four, well, about two, three times a year, about five or six of us pastors, and we're talking about our failings as in our preaching. Like, what are we doing wrong in our preaching? And one of the things, this is so, and I just, I just, I, I just am so embarrassed to say this, but one of the things that we fail, we realize that all of us fail to say uh, in our preaching, to tell our people, is that God loves you. <laughs> he really loves you. Listen to this. In all of your sin, in all of your failure, in all of your fear, in all of your duplicity, he loves you. And he will not stop loving you. He has loved you with an everlasting love, an unfailing love. He loves you. And it's something I haven't got in my notes. I just put it there recently. Tell people, tell, tell, tell them that God loves them. <laughs> but know this, as you, to live life under the Lordship of Christ is to know that you are chosen, that you are holy, that you are loved. So as those who are wanted by God, he says it's all, in fact, as those who are beloved, verse 14 tells us that lit life under the Lordship of Christ and the family of God is all about love. Look at verse 14. Such a beautiful phrase, the word here. And, and over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And I want to give you a definition of love. You've probably heard it before during the summary of the law. Listen to this. Summary, a, a definition of the word love. Love is treating others according to their worth and God's wisdom. Love is treating others, others according to their worth. Now, I didn't say according to their worthiness. I said according to their worth, right? God, as the creator, as the maker, he decides how much something is worth, he and he alone. And to look at people and realize that they have been made by God, they are masterpieces made by God. Even the most wayward, even the most straying, even the most deceived, even the most lost person, the most vile person in the world is still made in God's image and has a worth and a value that calls us to love them. It's an astonishing thing. In our cancel culture today, in our highly polarized culture, it's so easy to ridicule people, make fun of them, dismiss them, ignore them. And Jesus calls us to love, and especially to love one another in the family of God. It's all about love, treating others according to their worth and according to God's wisdom. He knows how we are to love others. So as those wanted by God, it's all about love, and that love looks to, in a two, has a twofold way. First, we are to love with welcome and to love with wisdom. Look in verse, uh, look in verse, the second part of verse 12. This is so good, so practical. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, listen to this language of welcome. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, 
and patience, language of welcome. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do the language of welcome that we love each other by welcoming, letting them know they belong, having a compassion, being interested in them. And you know one of those palpable ways you can show love, that welcome, simply by inviting people into your home. And maybe not, maybe you think, ah, my home is it's just it's a disaster zone. Invite them, invite them out to a restaurant. Take them out to dinner. Take them out to lunch. Hey, church is over, not today, but you know, we got a great barbecue, but next week or whatever, this summer, invite people to, out to, to lunch afterward. That language of welcome, you welcome them into your home. Come over. And that's one of the things I love about it. I love having all of you into our home. Sarah's labored and made food for us. And we just welcome you to our home and we welcome you into our hearts. Here's our lives. This is who we are and all our good, the bad, and the ugly. This is who we are. Under the lordship of Christ, the family of God is to be a place of love, a love that manifests itself first in welcome. But there's, so there's one other way this love is supposed to show itself. It's, the, it's in this idea of welcome. I'm sorry, of, of wisdom. Look in verse Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Listen to this. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs of the, from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. He's, Paul is speaking of, of, a, of a corporate life, both here on Sunday morning and throughout the week where there's real engagement, there's, there's instruction, there's warning, there's wisdom being communicated. There's no better place to do this than in small groups. In a small group, as you share your lives together, you can talk about the struggles that you're having. You can offer wisdom. You can say, well, what about this? Have you thought about this? Or you can, you can share, you can do life together and, and overcome the obstacles of life together. What does it look like? to do better in marriage? What does it look like in, to be, do better in parenting? So, you know, I've got my teenager right now or my child right now. They're just, I don't know what to do. What do you guys think? And you, 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 you encourage each other and you use that wisdom, the wisdom of the word, that countercultural, that counterintuitive wisdom of the word to navigate life together. So again, to live under the lordship of Christ and the family of God is to be about a community of love, a love that manifests itself in welcome, and in wisdom. So then Paul speaks, listen, this is so important. Having talked about the family of God, he now talks about, I mean, his family, he now talks about our families. Look in verse, um, look in chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. This is so awesome. We have this beautiful, and very simple, very, very brief, but very helpful instruction for our, how to bring our households under the lordship of Christ. Now listen, let me, let me, as a way of addressing this, and I, um, I, I won't take the time I would like to here, but understand something as I, before, we, before I, I speak to these relationships here of, of husband and wife, of parent-child, master-slave. The Bible is not about getting rid of authority. Our culture today vilifies authority. The reason for that is because most of the time, authority is misused. It's not hard to look at politicians. It's not hard to look at ex corporate executives. It's not hard to look at parents. It's not hard to find authority being abused. 
And because of that, our culture knee-jerk react, has a knee-jerk reaction to that, that says, let's just get rid of authority, period. And when you get rid of authority, listen to this. So let me say it this way. In, in, in Greek, the word leader or ruler is arche, arche. Now, when you, so arche, that word arche. Now, it describes a situation that is leaderless as the, with the Greek word anarchia. Can you guess what anarchia means? Anarchy. What, what would a kitchen be like without a, a chef? Let me ask it this way. Going back to the driving, imagine a car in which there was more than one steering wheel. Right? Imagine a department, a, a, a department at a college that had one more than, more than one department head. Right? Imagine a ship or a plane in which there was more than one captain. We all instinctively know that somebody has got to be in charge. Because if there's not, there's going to be anarchy. The ancient world knew this. We Americans think that we can just somehow distribute authority equally, distribute power equally, and that'll be great. And what that leads to is committee work. You ever been on a committee where there's no leader? And it's just, you just want to shoot yourself. Because it's like, will somebody please make a decision? Please, do something, right? It's, it's the most ineffective, inefficient, and you just lead to this, where are we, what are we, I don't know, no one, this, this agenda that we don't really, no one wants to do. Someone has to be in charge, and Scripture knows the ancient world knew that. The problem is that whoever is in charge has got to do it well, and they've got to do it in a selfless way. And so the Bible doesn't get rid of authority, it redeems authority. Just give me a second here, turn to the left, because I want you to see this, it's so important. Luke chapter 22, turn to the left, to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22, it's on page, let me look here, page uh, uh, 906 in your pew Bible, page 906 in your pew Bible. Look at Matthew 22, verse 24. And we, I'm not making this stuff up. This is so great. This is the, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal, right? It's, it's, uh, it's the, he's, just, he's just finished the Lord's Supper, as we're about to partake of here in a second. In verse 24, it says, I dispute, listen to this, a dispute also arose among them. The them there is the disciples. A dispute also arose, um, um, arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Isn't that awesome? They're arguing about which of them is the greatest. Isn't that great? It's the night of Jesus' betrayal, the very end of three years of his ministry with them, and they're all like, listen, I am better than you are. Let's just establish it right now. So they're arguing about which of them is greatest, and Jesus says to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. He's saying, look, the kings of this world, they're constantly misusing their authority. They lord it over them. They want to be called benefactors. They want to be called, they want, to be, they want names, they want glory. There's all this misuse of authority, verse 26. But you, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus said, there, he's not saying there should be no one who rules. He's saying that the one who rules should use their authority how? Selfless, selflessly for service. My point here is that the Bible says that authority, uh, the, that, uh, that the Bible redeems, of authority, redeems authority so that it's no longer selfish authority, but selfless authority. So let's turn back to Colossians. And let's look at this here. See, the world is going to insist, the world will insist that if you're not the leader, you are lesser. 
And, and, and uh, in the world of Scripture, in the world of Paul, in the world of, of the Gospels, nothing can be further from the truth. It's those who are servants who are greater. Okay? So with that in mind, let's, let's, let's flip back to this. Let's walk through these just very briefly here. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He's saying, look, Scripture says, look, someone in the, in the home has to, be, has to have the authority. Someone's got to make the call. And it's saying to wives, listen, in the Lord, you are called to an allegiance to your husband, to come alongside him, to have a servant-filled loyalty. I am on your team. And it's done in a way that is fitting to the Lord. This isn't just some sort of blind, just, you know, no matter what he says goes. It's saying, listen, listen, as a couple, we are under the Lordship of Christ, and I, to the extent that you are following the Lord, hubby, I am fully on board. And I'm going to take my resources, I'm going to take all the, the incredible talents and abilities that God has given me, and I'm here, I'm here, I'm with you. Where do you want to go? What are we going to do? It's an amazing thing when a wife does that. that that's, not some, that's not an act of weakness. That is an act of profound strength. Nowhere does the Bible say or assume that just because she's serving, because she's helping, that somehow she's lesser, that somehow she's less talented. In fact, it's just the opposite. Throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, that language of helper, you know, the first, the, 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 uh, the, uh, Genesis 2, God creates the woman. He calls her a helpmate or a helper. That word helper is used again and again and again to speak of God helping or saving his people. Right? Who's, who's more gifted or who's more talented? The one who needs help or the one who's helping? Right? Regularly in my home, I need help. It's not a, it's not a surprise. That's my kids. Right? So my point is, it's still an act of allegiance, an act of coming alongside. So it is a, what I would call the role of the wife in the home is a mission-minded allegiance right it's not about him it's not about her it's about a mission that god has given them and they are on it the second role look over husbands here husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them it's said the temptation of one who is in a position of responsibility or authority is simply to take those under them for granted and that's why he says love your wife don't take her for granted. Cherish her. Know how to treat her according to her worth. Proverbs 31 speaks of how the husband is to celebrate his wife in the city gate. That is publicly acknowledging how much she means to him. So the husband is called to what I'm going to call a selfless authority. It's not an abuse of that authority. It's not authoritarian. But nor is it an abdication of authority either. And listen. Listen, I, listen, for, listen, as a pastor, I, I, I can say I could, bring, I could bring in a whole line of pastors I know would say the same thing, men with far more pastoral experience than me. Today, and most times, today especially, when I talk to men about actually taking responsibility and taking that leadership role in their home, they don't form a fist. They don't be like, oh yeah, look at all my mother power. They don't go on a power trip. Do you know what they do? They break out in a cold sweat. You want me to you want me to lead? You want me to take lead? You want me to be? You want me to be responsible? You want me to actually try to? That's terrifying. How do I do that? What if she pushes back? 
What if she says no? What if she digs her heels in? What, what's that going to look like? And it is so tempting for men today to just simply, yes, dear, whatever you want to do, right? It's easier. It's so much easier. The wife objects, okay, never mind. What, what, how, what, you tell me how to do it. How do you want to do this? Right? And so this call to actually to a selfless responsibility, to a selfless authority, is a very challenging one. It's not one that somehow leads to, listen, obviously, I'm, I'm not here to dismiss any time there's been abuse, any time there's been that authoritarian, uh, any time these verses are used to justify that, that kind of behavior, is complete crap. That is no place. No place at all, and it's real. I know some of you, I, I have, in a crowd like this, I am positive there are, there, are, there are women here who have been, by, 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 by fathers or by husbands, have been abused in some way. And I just, I am, it just breaks my heart. This is a safe place for you. And listen, one of the things that I say in membership, when I bring, uh, when, when people come to be members of the church, um, in our interview, we're interviewing some people today after church. Uh, when we interview them, I will say, I'll look to the husband, I will say, hubby, one of the most loving things you can do for your wife and children is to become a member of the church in a way that says, listen, wife, listen, children, do you see those leaders over there? If ever I'm out of line, you go talk to them. Yes, I am leading this home, but I lead it as one who is accountable by real people, not by God in the abstract, or by, by real flawed men over here. And if I'm out of line, you go talk to them because I'm accountable to them. And just because dad's in charge doesn't mean that he has no one over him. Because real membership in a real church really involves accountability. That's a loving, gracious thing that you can do. See, to, be, to, 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 to have that authority as a husband doesn't mean that just you get to do whatever you want to do. It means that you're here to fulfill a Christ-like role in bringing life and order to the home. Let me finish up. I know that we've been a little long here. Let me just talk about parents and children just briefly. Paul says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And listen, you, you kiddos, just listen for a second, okay? There is no one who loves you more in this world, aside from God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's no one who loves you more than whom? Your parents. They love you. They want to see you succeed. They want to see you win. They want the best for you. And if you don't obey them, you don't understand who's on your team. And listen to this. One of my parents told me again and again when I was a kid that I just I never wanted to hear. They said, Bruce, if you, if you obey us, Jesus will bless you. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> I know you don't understand, Bruce, and you don't agree with us, but listen, I really believe that the Lord will bless you if you obey. You don't have to agree with us, but we're asking you to do it. And most of the time, by God's grace, I would begrudgingly do it. And guess what happened? In some way, the Lord would bless me. And it, just, and it would happen, I'd be like, oh, she's right. Mom's right. It's the most brutal thing. But listen, children, the Lord will bless you if you obey your children, if you obey your parents in everything. Parents, finally, he says, verse 21, says, Fathers, 
Um, here, just so you can understand this, and I, I think as the, the NIV footnote mentions here, uh, in saying fathers, it's, it's inclusive of both mother and father. Parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. It's very tempting as parents to, um, to nitpick and to, and to find and, and to f- be fault finders, to find out what's wrong with our children. And Paul is encouraging us to be parents who enjoy our children and who encourage our children, who affirm our children, not flatter our children, not always be there to rescue our children, not be a helicopter parent, but to, uh, to enjoy and to encourage our parents. So with that, let me just, let me, that's enough. There's so, there's so much, there's a boatload there. I'm sure so many of you have questions about this stuff. The things that, that Paul is saying here are very culturally uh, counterintuitive, or countercultural. They are very uh, counterintuitive to what the world is saying, what the world of higher education, what the media says, etc., etc. And I am more than, I would love to sit down and engage with you. And say, okay, these are a few brief verses, but what does it look like here and now in my family, in my marriage, with my kids, what does this look like? And I would love to do that with you. I would love to walk with you. I want, listen, husbands, wives, singles, I want to see you all win. And I truly believe that under the lordship of Christ, you and truly can win. There's just so much confusion in our culture today about how to do this stuff. And it's not like I have all the answers, I don't. But I do believe that by God's grace, He's given me a wisdom to help with the word to navigate those roles of husband and wife, of parent and child, so that together we can live our lives in the Lordship of Christ, not only in, in his family, but in our own. Let's, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed uh, at how our culture today is so lost in these matters that are so important. And Lord, we're no less lost Lord, we, we realize we too have drank the Kool-Aid that calls for freedom from constraint. And Lord, how we have ended up fearful, frustrated, how we thought with such anticipation has only led to anxiety and to a confusion and just being lost. Lord, we're done with that kind of freedom. We, we long to live under your lordship. We long to live in a, in a beautiful loyalty to you. A loyalty that calls us to surrender every aspect of our lives to you because you know what you're doing. And Father, we just don't. That's the the sad truth is we just don't know what we're doing. And so we ask that you you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to surrender our lives to you, to say, I'm sorry, and I surrender. And believe that you indeed will lead us, that you will guide us through the wisdom of your word to be the family of God to be a godly family, each and every one of us. So, Father, please, we, as we turn to consider your Lord's Supper, Father, we, we recognize, Jesus, how you, you, and you as, as God's Son, shared in our humanity, how you came down here and lived and died as one of us, how you, how you stretched out your arms upon that cross and offered yourself in perfect obedience to the will of your Father as a sacrifice for the whole world. Father, it is, uh, it is the death of your Son that we now proclaim this meal. And it is in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.